0: what does David say? He was saying, God, I'm not blaming anything. I'm not blaming Bathsheba. I'm not blaming Uriah. I'm not blaming my parents. I'm not blaming my upbringing. I'm not blaming my circumstances. God, the problem is me.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in his current series titled, Caught in the Act. Throughout our series in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, we've looked at the issue of God's timeless, moral, and perfect law. And as you've learned so far, believers are dead to the law through the death of Jesus Christ. Last time, Tom began to look at Paul's defense of the law of God, a defense brought about by the objections of his opponents. They asked, can the perfect law of God cause you to sin? Well, as Tom will teach today, of course not. The law only reveals the depth and depravity of human sin. How? Let's join Tom to find out here on The Word Unleashed.
0: Several years ago... Uh, I received in the mail a uh, summons for jury duty. Many of us in this room have received those summons, and they are both, uh, at one point, a joy because it's our duty and privilege as American citizens. On the other hand, there always are more things to do than one can get done, and so it's a, it's a bit of a, oh no, am I going to have to serve on jury duty? Now, I went to the criminal courthouse there in Fort Worth, and... Uh, in the course of the day, I was selected as one of the final potential jurors to be considered, that, that last pool before the final 12 are chosen. The defendant in the particular trial that uh, I was called to, to sit was accused of driving under the influence of alcohol. That morning, when it was the defense attorney's time to question the, this pool of jurors, he didn't begin by, answer, by asking questions. He began instead by explaining the Texas legal code pertaining to drunk driving. And when he had finished with his, his chart and graph of all that, um, that the legal code in Texas requires for a person to be convicted of drunk driving... He then began to openly question the law itself, and and he even went on to suggest that the law was flawed, and it needed to be changed because of what he saw as ambiguities and inequities within the law as it was written. Now once he had finished his diatribe against the law, he started asking jurors one by one if they agreed with his perspective. Of course, it was obvious what he was doing. He was attempting to find those jurors that would be the most likely to to hear and respond favorably to his defense. But eventually, in the course of doing that, he got to juror number 14, which happened to be me. And he asked me if I agreed with him that the Texas law was unfair and should be changed. Now, I need to first of all say in my defense that... (laughs) that I didn't intentionally calculate my response to get out of jury duty. <laughs> but I did suspect that my response might have that result. When he asked me that question, I, I answered this way. I said, sir, and by the way, I didn't say it sarcastically. I said it straightforwardly and graciously. I said, sir, it's my understanding that we are not here to sit in judgment on the law but to decide whether your client broke the law as it is currently written. That's when I was told that my service would no longer be needed. <laughs> now, clearly, that attorney's defense of his client was going in part to blame the law. And that's not an uncommon response. Honestly, it's not an uncommon response for those who are caught in the act of any criminal activity. They blame everything but themselves, and sometimes they even blame the law. There have been times when an inmate has been proven guilty and sentenced to death, and just before his execution, he has blamed others or even the legal system itself for his impending death. He refuses to acknowledge that it is his own crime that has brought the sentence of death. It's exactly that kind of blame shifting that Paul the Apostle refuses to let sinners do in the passage that we are studying together here in Romans chapter 7. You remember that in this great chapter, Paul is addressing the issue of God's law, God's timeless moral law that is included in the Mosaic law but is supersedes it and lasts beyond the Mosaic law because it's a reflection of his own character. That moral law that is outlined in what we call the Ten Commandments. Now Paul had to address this issue of God's law because you remember back in chapter 6 verse 14, he just made this statement. He said, you are not under law but under grace. And he knew that that passing comment would invite a number of serious questions. What do you mean, Paul, we're not under law? Are you trying to undermine the holy law of God? So in chapter 7, he returns to this issue of God's moral law. He begins chapter 7 in the first six verses by explaining our death to the law. If you're a Christian, verse 4 says, you have been made by God to die to the law through the death of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that section, what a rich and beautiful truth that is. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7 and running down through verse 13 is Paul's defense of the law. This is where he begins to say, listen, I am not in any way undermining or attacking the law of God. He defends it instead, and that's the paragraph we're studying together. Now, it's been several weeks since we studied it, so let me read this paragraph in its entirety just so we get the flow of the context. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful." Now, just to remind you of the structure of this paragraph, it's pretty clear. You saw two repeating expressions. There are two objections that Paul anticipates his opponents making against his statement, we are not under law. He cites that objection and then refutes it. He answers it. The first objection comes in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he responds, may it never be. And then he goes on to answer that objection that has been raised all the way down through verse 12. The second objection comes in verse 13, expressed very similar language. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Again, he responds, may it never be. And then the rest of verse 13 is his answer, his response to that objection. We studied the first objection that Paul anticipated to his teaching and his answer to it. Let me just review it with you briefly. His overarching point in verses 7 through 12 is this God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, doesn't cause your sin, it doesn't make you sin. The objection itself is stated in verse 7. Essentially, his opponents were saying, Listen, Paul, your teaching and its logical conclusion is that God's law is evil and it is the cause of our sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Paul's answer is absolutely not. Our inherent sinfulness causes our sin. And he answers beginning in the middle of verse 7 down through verse 12. Notice his answer begins with, may it never be. God forbid, that's, not, that's morally repugnant to me, he says. And then he spells out his answer. He begins in verse 7 by explaining the real purpose of the law for unbelievers. That purpose is twofold. It is to identify what is sin. It's to help unbelievers see this is what God expects. This is what God demands. That activity is sin. And secondly, to prove to the sinner that he has broken that law, that he is a sinner. It serves both purposes for unbelievers. He moves on then in verses 8 through 11 to explain the real cause of our sin. He begins in verse 8 with a a sort of summary statement. But sin, and by the way, by sin here, he's not talking about acts of sin. He's talking about your sin nature, your fallenness, your inherent sinfulness that you were born with and that I was born with. He says, our inherent sinfulness, verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. That's a summary, and then in verses 8 through 11, he walks through the process, how that unfolded in his life. He, he talks of a time before the commandment came. Before Paul understood the 10th commandment about coveting, he says, notice what he says there in in verses 8 and 9, that sin was dead. He means he was unaware of it in his life. He didn't recognize it. And he was alive. That is, he thought he was spiritually alive. He thought he and God were good. You know, you hear that today. You try to share the gospel with someone, and and their immediate response is, you know, you don't need to go there because you know God and I are good. That's how Paul felt. Yeah, God and I are good. Maybe you feel that way. That's how Paul thought. Until the commandment came, he says. I was alive. I thought everything was fine. But when the commandment came, by that he means when the the tenth commandment about coveting came in its full meaning with its full force upon his conscience after the commandment came, after he got it, when Paul came to a full understanding of God's law, two things happened. Notice verse 9. Sin became alive. Before he understood the command not to covet, he had not fully sensed the power of sin in him. He thought he and God were okay. Everything's okay. I'm a a basically good person. In fact, he says in Philippians 3 6, "In, in terms of keeping the law externally, I was blameless. That was his view of himself before this happened. But when the law said, You shall not covet, Two things happened. First of all, he became aware that there was sin in his heart, the sin of coveting. It's like, uh uh-oh, I do that. But that isn't all that happened. Secondly, he suddenly had awakened in him a desire to covet in lots of different ways, all kinds of coveting. Why did that happen? Because that's what the law does. The law awakens our autonomy. I don't want to be told what to do. Just like that two-year-old that you point out and say, don't touch that, that's how we respond because of our inherent desire for autonomy. When the law says, don't, our immediate response is to desire to do. This happened. Sin became alive. Paul suddenly had an overwhelming desire for all kinds of things that were forbidden by God, and he could no longer ignore his sin. It came to life, and he says in verse 9, and I died. In other words all of his self-confidence, all of his self-righteousness, all of his spiritual pride as a pharisee died. Now, having explained that process, he comes in verse 12 to the real character of God's law. God's law is not the problem. He says in verse 12, "So then the law, God's moral law is holy. It is completely without any taint of of sin." And, he goes on in verse 12 to say, and the commandment, that is the ninth commandment about, or the tenth commandment rather, about coveting, is holy and righteous and good. Paul's answer to the first objection, God's moral law didn't cause you to sin. The law's not the problem. Your own inherent sinfulness is the problem. And that's what the law awakened. And it's the real problem. Now today, We come to verse 13, and a second objection to Paul's teaching on the law. An objection Paul feels he needs to address as he continues to defend God's law. The point of verse 13 could be summarized this way. God's moral law doesn't cause your death. The first objection, God's moral law doesn't cause you to sin, cause your sin. Verse 13, God's moral law doesn't cause your death. Look at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, notice, first of all, the objection. The objection is at the beginning of verse 13, and essentially he's responding to this, Paul, your teaching leads to the logical conclusion that God's law is what caused your death. You said when it came, you died. must be the law's problem, the law's responsible. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. That which is good refers back, obviously, to verse 12. The, the tenth commandment is called good there in verse 12. So the issue is this. Was it God's moral law and specifically the command against coveting that caused Paul's death? But then we have to ask the question, what does it mean by death? So far in Romans, he's talked about spiritual death. He's talked about physical death. He's talked about eternal death. What death is he talking about here? Well, In the context, Paul has to be referring to the death of his spiritual self-confidence, his spiritual self-reliance, his self-righteousness as a Pharisee. That's what he's been talking about dying to. Go back to verse 9. When the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. I lost all of my spiritual confidence. I thought God and I were okay, but when the law came, I realized we weren't. Verse 10 the commandment proved to result in death for me. It brought that death to my confidence, death to my self-reliance, to my pride. Verse 11, sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, killed me. So let me, let me summarize the objection this way. Paul is asking this, is the accusation against me true? Am I really teaching, as some say I do, that it is legitimate to blame God's law for my spiritual problems, including my awareness of my sin. Is God's law the problem? The rest of ver- verse 13 is Paul's answer. Notice he begins in verse 13 with this answer may it never be. This is Paul's response of moral outrage. Never would I ever agree with that, he says. And then he says, rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin. He says, the problem is our sin nature, and our sin nature is revealed in its true nature, and its deadly character is demonstrated in how it produces sin through God's good law. Now, let's break that down and look at it. Because Paul's answer is really comprised of two parts. First part of his answer. Paul teaches us this. God's moral law reveals the true nature of our inherent sinfulness. God's moral law reveals the true nature of our inherent sinfulness. Verse 13 he says, did that which is good, the, the law of God, become a cause of death for me? Is that what killed me? May it never be. Rather it." was sin he says the fault lies with our inherent sinfulness you understand this about yourself your spiritual problems trace back to your sin nature with which you were born to your fallenness everything that's wrong with you traces back to the sin nature with which you were born and what did Paul's fallenness do what does our fallenness do look at verse 13 it affected my death through that which is good. My sin nature, my fallenness, that nature with which I was born used God's law. It used God's law to completely destroy me, to destroy my self-reliance, to destroy my self-righteousness. But you know what? That's not a bad thing. In fact, that's exactly what God designed the law to do, to function like this. Notice the purpose clauses of verse 13. Midway, in order that, and a little later in the verse, so that. These purpose clauses identify God's purpose in allowing our sin nature to respond to his law like Paul's describing here. Notice first of all, verse 13, in order that it might be shown to be sin. Now, Paul means two things there. I think he means, first of all, that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments summarizes it, but God's moral expectations of us show what attitudes and actions are sin. How do you know what's sin? Well, God's law tells you. Oh, wow, that's sin? I I shouldn't do that because God says that's wrong. That's sin. It shows you what sin is. But that's not all that God God's law does. It does more. Secondly, God's law shows me my sinfulness. It doesn't just show me the, the reality that that activity is sin or that attitude or that thought is sin. When I look at the law and I look at myself, it shows me that I am sinful. This morning, uh, when most of us were getting ready, we looked at a mirror perhaps if you didn't you you should have but but we looked in a mirror why well you, you look at yourself in the mirror and and you're looking for something that needs to be fixed before you go out in public is there something I need to do the law of god is like a mirror to our souls It allows us to see our inherent sinfulness. As we see the law, it reflects back the image of ourselves, and we see how ugly spiritually we are. God's moral law does for our souls what shining a black light in a supposedly clean bathroom does. Let's try that little experiment, ladies. You won't sleep tonight. Because that black light reveals all that is disgusting, even when you thought that room was clean. And that's exactly what the law of God does for us. We look at God's law, and we thought we were okay. We thought God and, us, God and we were good. Everything was fine. And then we see the law, and it's like the black light comes on our souls and shows everything that's disgusting, that outrages God. The law functions like glasses. Many of us wear glasses. Some of us get along just fine, really, without our glasses if we had to. Others of us couldn't find our way to the alarm clock without our glasses. What do they do? Your glasses allow you to to see things as they really are, as opposed to that sort of Monet look that some of you get without your glasses. You really see it. That's what God's law does. It's like putting on glasses and looking at yourself as you really are. Another way to think of it is this God's moral law functions like turning on a light in a dimly lit room. My wife and I have different sort of philosophies about light in the evening. I prefer that sort of soft, dimly lit feel. And my wife, on the other hand, likes the, you know, all the lights blazing like daylight. And there's an advantage to my approach, and that's because when I'm sitting at my desk in my office at home, and the lights are dim, I I just don't see that dust that's on the desk. (laughs) But when you turn the light all the way up, you see it. It's like, where did that come from? I didn't know that was here. That's what the law of God does. It functions in the same way. It allows me to see the dirt in my life and soul that was there before the light was turned up. For Paul, the light came on in his soul through the 10th commandment against covetousness. That's what God used in his life.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Caught in the Act. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us for that, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one 577 word And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org.